0: today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml we know nafta negotiations are continuing there's another story out today that says they're close to a deal uh, yeah stop me if you've heard this before but one of the concerns obviously that uh, that we have here in this area of course is the steel industry uh because of the tariffs that donald trump put on the steel industry and uh, whether or not these things are going to be lifted and the impact that the nafta deal might have on the industry well, uh, amazingly, apparently surging steel prices are kind of protecting them. When the tariffs went on there, there was a concern that uh, there might even be layoffs around here because of that. That doesn't seem to be happening. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, Bill. We were talking about doom and gloom and layoffs and, and canceled orders and all sorts of stuff. Why isn't that happening?
1: You're right, and by the way, I won't hide the fact I was I was suggesting that that was going to be an outcome.
0: I think everybody uh, was. Uh,
1: everybody was. In fact, the, uh, the the CEOs of the steel companies testified before the House of Commons, I read the transcript, and they were predicting much greater doom and gloom. And and to be fair to all of those people that were, there is a reason for that, because whenever you impose a tariff, on any country imposes a tariff, it raises the cost of the product. So there's nothing wrong with the logic of, of that criticism that tariffs are bad I maintain that tariffs are 300 years in economics <laughs> theory and practice has taught us that tariffs are bad they reduce they increase the cost of business and all other things being equal they reduce the demand for the product so what happened in this instance was that the prices were going up independent of the tariffs for a whole bunch of reasons and I'm talking worldwide, the Chinese have been cutting back production of some of their uh, plants. Could be because of uh, criticism by uh, Europe and the United States that they are dumping uh, because they're overproducing. Could have been that. Could have been they were just very old plants. Uh, and, of course, uh, economic activity the, uh, is just booming in the United States. Steel is a critical component in construction, not, of course, of houses for you and I but any high-rise building uses enormous amounts of steel and of course the automobile industry and so forth so this is this uh rise, increase in the prices was mitigating or offsetting the the tariffs how so because if your revenues go up unexpectedly by 25% or 30% because the price has gone up and the tariffs uh, uh eat into that by two percent five percent seven percent you're still ahead of the game and now that's dependent for the producers the steel producers that the price of steel went up more than the tariffs went up because they're paying the tariffs basically they're absorbing it and so what they they were very fortunate that the that the prices did go up that the market prices did go up and uh, so that allowed the producers to absorb that, uh, the, the, those tariffs. I still think that tariffs are a bad idea. I, I, it's a tax. You know, we call it a tariff, and it seems to be so innocent and benign. It's just a plain, old-fashioned tax, and it's an unnecessary tax, and it's a tax that hurts the economic productivity and efficiency. That's why, for the last 70 years since the Depression, actually, since the end of the Second World War, the WTO and countries around the world have been phasing out tariffs. This is a long-term trend over seventy years. This isn't just one professor from one university saying this. All you have to do, anybody has to do, is go to the WTO. And what have they been doing for seven years? Reducing tariffs. What do trade agreements do? Reduce tariffs. What's NAFTA do? Reduce tariffs. What does the European trade agreement do? Reduce tariffs. So everybody thinks they're a bad idea.
0: And so, well, not everybody. Well, there's, a, there's everybody. an interesting passage in Bob Woodward's book called "Fear" about the Donald Trump administration, yeah. Yeah. where I'm sure you know it, and where the uh, staffers, uh, including uh, Mr. Cohn and a couple of others, are yeah. trying to convince the president that they don't do tariffs. They're bad. They're bad for our economy and every yeah. other economy. And they, according to the, the book, Trump just threw his hands up and says, I don't want to hear that, and, and walked out of the room. Yeah. So he, yeah. he apparently still thinks they're okay. Yeah. And I, doesn't want I, to hear anything. To the, uh, don't let, the, don't let the, his opinion get, you know, hear the facts get in the way of his opinion.
1: Exactly. I cannot disagree with him more. Uh, and, I mean, this is, again, it's, it's 300 years of theory, Nobel Prizes no less. And practice. I mean we've seen it. I mean where uh we've had tariff wars in the past, the famous the Depression of the thirties when they had these beggar thy neighbor tariffs, you know, one country would ratchet up the tariffs mm-hmm. and the other country would retaliate and so forth. And I'm not saying it caused the depression. Most economists don't believe it caused it, but most economists believe that it made the depression much worse than it would have been otherwise without those sky high tariffs. So they're not they're not he's wrong. He's just plain wrong. The the tariffs are not good. He is protected right now uh, his his wrong view is, if you will, protected by the fact that the economy is doing so well in the states for other reasons they're not doing well because of the tariffs they're doing well, the economy is doing well in spite of the tariffs the low tax cut Helped enormously. You know, he's got a very pro-growth agenda. He's been deregulating like crazy, getting rid of an awful lot of uh, of the Obama regulations. And I'm not going to get into a debate of Obama versus Trump, but there a lot of those uh, regulations that uh, that Obama put in uh, were widely believed, at least by economists and business people, to have slowed down the economy, to slow down productivity. And so right now it's sort of open season for business to go out and make money. And uh, so the economy is booming. What a surprise! And uh, so the, that's driving up the demand for steel. That's driving up the price of steel. And uh, as a consequence, it's enabling the steel producers to take the hit. And it is a hit. It's a negative hit of the tariff uh, uh, that they've been that has been
0: imposed on them. How long is this going to last, though? I mean, you'd like to think that this is going to carry on for a while, or there's going to be a deal, and that's going to end the tariffs. Yeah. We don't know yet. But yeah. is, this, is, is it a blip that we're experiencing right now?
1: Uh, I don't think so, and I'll explain why. And I don't want to get into all the other tariffs and all the other, because people, you know, I think people are sort of conflating it. They're all the same thing and, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. The steel market, and I, I uh, actually testified last fall before the House of Commons Committee on International Trade, and I went and read a ton on it because it's really interesting. And there is absolutely no question that China has been dumping. China has been cheating. And it's not Ian Lee saying that. That was the ruling of the European body, government body, Uh, This is a a technocratic body of economists and statisticians and so forth. And they evaluated all the data for going back five years, massive amounts of statistical data and and export data and prices and so forth. And they came to a legal determination. It was a legal ruling, as did the U.S. administration's uh, equivalent body. They concluded that China was dumping. China is producing about 50 percent of the world's steel. And so, I mean, it's enormous. They went from being a very small producer only 10 years ago or so to 50 percent. And there is no doubt, as I said, that they're dumping. So the problem that they're trying, both the Europeans and the Americans and the Canadians are trying to address, is how do they respond to the dumping of steel by China? And this is separate and apart from the other markets and the other industries. And uh, so there's been, uh, I mean, I think the Europeans, although they're not as loud about it, they're even more angry than Donald Trump is about the dumping of steel by the Chinese. I suspect, but I do not know nobody, you know, the Chinese government's opaque, nobody's inside there with the real story, but I suspect they're closing some of their older least productive plants in China in response, is a criticism, the sustained, massive criticism by the Europeans and the Americans, and so the Chinese are responding somewhat. Uh, I, from what I understand, they're still dumping, they're, at least they're selling well below the cost of American and, and European steel, but they've cut back their exports by closing some of these plants. So that's progress. Uh, the, but there's a, up until this year, there was a, an oversupply of steel in the market, principally caused, as I said, by China. As markets come back into balance, supply and demand comes back into balance, partly because the economy is growing so so strongly, this may cause, and now I'm trying to answer your question in a long roundabout way, this will cause, uh, reduce the pressures for the tariffs to continue, because if the supply and demand comes into balance, price is going up. The, the heat won't be on so much to address the problem from China. And China, as I said, is taking some steps to address their problem
0: themselves. A couple of things about NAFTA, because you can't talk about steel without getting into this exactly. in some way. Uh, yes. And 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 we're concerned, obviously, about the tariffs and, and whether or not yes. they're going to be lifted upon the deal. And and when you as you and I talked about a few days ago, there's no guarantee that that's in there. Uh, I know Doug Ford was down in Washington, uh, yeah. obviously, making the case, and he met with Ms. Freeland and some of the U.S. folks, as a matter of fact. Uh, so that's that's there. It's on the table. So we're not how that's going to work out. But there's a rumor coming out today that one of the, the things that may come out of this NAFTA deal is the U.S. may say, okay, fine, we'll drop the tariffs, but we're going to put quotas on how much you can put into the U.S. market here, which is, I think, going to be somewhat problematic, isn't it? Of course
1: it is. Of course it is. And again, that has been studied. Quotas and tariffs are usually studied by economists uh, in the same Study. <laughs> I mean, they're they're sort of brothers and sisters, or identical twins, or whatever metaphor you want to use, because governments historically, um, eh, and I'm talking in the last hundred years when I say historically, and I'm talking mostly Western governments and some of the emerging economies like China. Um, you know, they, they either use tariffs or uh, quotas um, as as two techniques to try to control what's coming in. One's as bad as the other, uh, because a quota limits the amount of it limits competition and you know i i probably somebody like jerry diaz would disagree with me but i mean i've got 300 years on my side we know that enhanced competition produces enhanced prosperity because the enhanced competition makes every company sharper more aggressive, meaning they, get, they, they, they curb inefficiencies, they take inefficiencies out of their value chain. The reason we have the highest standard of living in the world, and I'm talking the U.S., Canada, and Western Europe, is because we have the most competitive markets, that is to say they're not gimmicked by governments. And when they start putting tariffs in and quotas, what you're doing is undermining the efficiency of the market. And, I mean, developing countries have been doing this forever. I mean, that, I argue, is one of the reasons why they're so poor or less successful is precisely because they won't allow the markets to perform. And uh, quotas, as I said, is a bad thing uh, because it's saying that uh, we will not, uh, you know, we have quotas basically with supply management. We won't allow the, we'll allow very small amounts to come in from foreigners, and that's it. And so because we don't want competition, yet it's competition that uh, motivates innovation companies innovate to try to get a competitive edge on another company that's why you innovate and try and produce a better iphone a better mousetrap but if there's if you can't get into the market or nobody can come in from outside, why are you going to bother going and hustling and innovating if there's nobody to uh, compete against? Or, you know, in other words, if you're limiting the competition coming in. You don't win the Stanley Cup by playing against all the lousy teams in the Junior B Hockey League. You win by playing against other superior teams and upping your game and becoming more competitive. And so any time we try to diminish the competition through quotas and tariffs, all we're doing is hurting ourselves in the, in the medium and longer term.
0: Well, isn't there a certain hypocrisy to this, though? I mean, they're berating us right now for our system our, of protectionism, which is yeah. supply management, yet now we're hearing that they're going to do the exact same thing for their steel industry.
1: Uh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm so opposed. Um, I, and I know, and I'm not I'm changing the subject at all, because one other instrument that governments use are subsidies. And I get emails all the time from farmers saying, how come, you know, you're so opposed to quotas and tariffs, but you're okay with subsidies? Well, I'm not okay with subsidies. I think they're bad. But there is a consensus in economic research, again, for a very long period of time, that of the two, quotas and, and tariffs are much worse than subsidies because – they interfere with the market itself and the market price. With subsidies, because it's more indirect, they're not ideal. The ideal world, you'd have no subsidies, no quotas, no tariffs. That's the ideal competitive market world. But if you have to be bad, <laughs> it's better to be bad in a less bad way than in a, in a worse bad way, if I can use these str- this sort of strange language. In other words, subsidies are bad, but they're nowhere near as bad as quotas or price-fixing uh, or, or, or tariffs. So it's, that's why I you know, have argued that let's open up supply management, open up the dairy, and if we need to subsidize the dairy farmers, that's, that's okay with me. I mean, the Americans subsidize their farmers. My goodness me, we subsidize all kinds of businesses in this sure. country. You know, and We've been doing it for a very long time. But, but the evidence is absolutely crystal clear. Subsidies are not as um, – uh, they don't mess up the marketplace as much their their cost to the taxpayer for sure but they don't interfere with supply and demand to the same way that price fixing does and quotas do and tariffs do which is a way to manipulate the prices we don't want to muck about with the price system of supply and demand so if we're going to intervene if governments are going to intervene well then they should intervene by subsidies because because it's a less Bad way of intervention.
0: I got less than a minute left, but I got to ask you this because there's another story out of Washington this morning t- as well. That uh, the American side of the neg- negotiations is backing away from the America First purchase policy. Is that a good sign?
1: I think it is a good sign. Uh, I mean, that's again, that's a backdoor form of protectionism. All of these techniques we're discussing, you know, whether it's quotas <laughs> or tariffs or buy American, it's a form of protectionism to limit competition. And so, I mean, it, 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 the, the Buy American policy was just a very bad policy. You know, and I'm not living in the ivory tower. You know, if you want to, people to buy American, I've got a good answer for you, a good strategy, which is what I teach. Build a better product. I mean, people are buying iPhones at an outrageous price. I refuse to buy a $1,000 iPhone, but my daughter <laughs> doesn't, and lots of young people want it. They've made this phone that everybody wants to buy. Build a better mousetrap. You don't need buy American policies from the government if you are a good competitive company
0: that makes good competitive products. Ian Lee from the sports School of Business. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked a few days ago about uh, curriculum just before the school year, and there are a number of issues obviously to do with that. The sex ed thing, which is going to roll out and still be controversial. We understand that. But uh, we also talked about math scores and uh, and reading, because uh, these are ongoing tests that are done, of course. And uh, we've got a problem here in Hamilton. Uh, two-thirds of the grade six students are falling short in math in Hamilton public schools. Why is this happening? As a matter of fact, the numbers this year are, are not even as good as they were last year. Uh, Manny Figuardo is uh, is the uh, chairman of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Manny, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
2: Oh, thank you, uh- uh, Bill, just a reminder, the chair of the board is Todd White. I'm, I'm the director sorry, Director of Education.
0: Director of Education. I yes. am can't read my own scribbling here. Uh, there's good news and bad news. I mean, the, the reading scores here are quite good, so literacy is, is fine, and that seems to be something that, uh, that we can hang our hats on for a little while. But what's going on with the math scores?
2: That's a um, great question. I, and um, and you can see this provincial problem, but where I'm more concerned is that our results in junior continue to grow relative to the, uh, the gap continues to grow relative to the province. But but what really bewilders us when we, and this is what the data doesn't show, is that you have to look at the data two ways. How is each board doing relative to the province? Because you want to compare your group of students relative to all the students that wrote the assessment in the same year and the cohort. So you need to follow the cohort. So when I uh, look at the group of students who wrote um, uh, uh, the grade six this year, and only 35% uh, achieved it. You go back and, and look at the results in grade three, and they were over 50%. But then you need to look at that group of kids as they project to grade nine. Of course, these group of students are not in grade, you know, we'll write it in three years from now. But when I look at previous years, the pattern we're seeing is that when they get to grade nine, you know, 37% of the kids are, are getting it applied, and about 80, you know, 80 to 81 are achieving it in academics. When we, when we look at the total number, because two-thirds of our kids take academic versus applied, that's about 65%. So I look at the previous years and say, why do they do better in grade 3, same group of kids, dip in grade 6 drastically, but then when they get to grade 9, they're actually closing the gap? So when I look at the 16-17 cohort who wrote it, when they were in grade 6 and 13-14, they got 46% only on grade 6. When they got to grade 9, that same group of kids, 65% of them achieved level 3 on the provincial assessment. So we keep understanding what's happening in the junior grades. Is it the curriculum? Is it the assessment tool? Or is it the way we're instructing that's not aligning to the, to the tool?
0: So how do you make that determination? Well,
2: the, the, what we're doing right now is we're unpacking over the last three years of that assessment to find out what, uh, what are the questions that we tend to do well, because each question is connected to curriculum expectation. Mm-hmm. Which questions over time are we not doing well? So we unpacked just most this week one school, and we said, wow, that school um, did so high in reading and really struggled in math, really poorly. And how EQAO assesses, as you know, a provincial level is anywhere from what they say a 3, a B-, minus. but they go 3, 3.1, 3.2. They they score kids individually. In that school, um, uh, only um, about 5% of the kids actually made level 3, but all the other grade 6 kids were between 2.6 and 2.9. So I said there's something in how they're responding All of them were on the cusp. What is it? um, So we need to unpack and actually look at those questions and find out what are the curriculum expectations that they struggle with. So our research department is going to do a deep analysis with our program department looking over the last three years. Because in our annual plan this year, we're actually targeting the junior grades and trying to understand uh, what's happening uh, in those grades based on on that assessment tool.
0: We should also uh, explain to our listeners that, that that this dip you're talking about in grade six, uh, you know, the, the, from three to nine, thing, uh, it's it's not a Hamilton only problem. I, I'm I it, my understanding is that the, that seems to be relevant to, in the provincial numbers as well, but maybe not as drastic as what we're seeing in Hamilton. Right. It, well, that yeah. doesn't that kind of point you towards curriculum then? Yes,
2: yeah, something is happening in the in, in the curriculum. This is what I do know. I, I do know that the curriculum in grade four, five, and six, Bill becomes more robust, more complex and more challenging and a lot of curriculum expectations for educators to cover. It it, it does grow um exponentially. Um and so we do hear sometimes educators it's a lot to cover at times uh in a short you know in a short period of time in, in what what should be our emphasis. And I think you're seeing the provincial government now, you know, you heard that push on you know focusing on fundamental math concepts and skills. Yeah. But you know, but I do want to push, you know, in our local context so what we've learned, we said when we focused on grade one reading, as you know, is one of our priorities, and we've invested in, in that, especially in our high priority schools where we know there's some, you know, there are social economic factors we have to address. When we've fo- uh, f- um, focused there intensely, we've actually seen our grade three reading results go from 64 to 65 to 69. So I say, okay, that's year to year, but relative to the province, we went up four percent, and the province went up one. So we closed the gap there. We said, well, what did we do? Well, we actually provided reading specialist supports in in these schools, especially in our high priority schools where um, students with special needs and the intensity uh, of you know of need, of proportion of students with needs is greater. So then, how do we respond? So when so when I say that, so I don't because if people say, well, sometimes the needs are so great, that can never be an excuse. What it needs to be is an opportunity. Then how do we respond to that? So when our results come out. Um, in October to the board of trustees, they're going to be asking the question, how did our high-priority schools do versus all our schools? And uh, I'm excited. The early indication when I look at the results, our results went up 4%. Um, we closed the gap because our high-priority schools had some of the greatest gains. So now, how do we translate that to math and, and figure out how do we do, replicate that sort of in, in our junior grades in mathematics, and especially in high-priority schools because they tend to be the ones that are struggling the most.
0: But if you're going to use the same theory here, uh, it sounds as if what you need is more resources than in the classroom. And I hate to bring that ugly word up, Manny, but that means money, doesn't
2: it? Absolutely it does, because we have focused um, in high-party schools um, across our district, but with intense focus on reading specialists. And we have... Um, because we know early intervention. If they can't read, Bill, if they can't, they're not proficient readers. They're going to have a hard time accessing any curriculum. Yeah,
0: right. Every, every subject, yeah.
2: Every subject, but for math, we don't have the same number of um, resources as we do in, in early reading. Now, the board of trustees will review that through budget process, but also, you know, trustees are dependent on how the ministry, you know, supports that focus as well. Uh, right now, we have six math coaches who focus in our 20 high-priority schools, what we've said now this year is saying, well, instead of them spreading themselves thin across all the grades, we want them to intensely focus in grade 4, 5, and 6. Once we do the research and analysis of the tool, what curriculum and expectations are, are students struggling with over time, then what's the best strategies to put in there? And we're also working with our special education department because one of the things we're a little concerned about is that students who might have a certain profile like learning disability. How are we then assessing and helping them and accommodating them, especially when it comes to this type of assessment? Um, Because that's a group of students we're seeing in our data that are not achieving level three. And a student with a learning disability, uh, the narrative should never be, well, that's the reason why we're not doing well. No, it should be, they can achieve, so what is it we have to do differently for these students?
0: I got, I got to ask you about some of the stuff I'm hearing politically, and 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 again, I I want to try to sift through that because I don't want to make this political, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, you know, there, there's a new government in Queens Park now, and one of the things they ran on was uh, what they called a back to basics math program because they've seen these numbers, and and you've t- articulated uh, way, the way they've been for the last three years. Uh, what exactly does back to basics mean? Is it does it mean you? you well, I, I one of my co said, does that mean they dumb it down? I said, I hope not, obviously, because that's a, uh, not really what we're shooting for here. But how do you approach something like that and, and bring it back down?
2: Well, so here's, you know, this is how they've defined, you know, when they say focus on these fundamental math concepts, you know, they've identified clearly working with numbers, you know, recognizing and applying and understanding uh, number properties, mastering math facts, developing mental math skills, and developing proficiency with operations. Uh, all those are important but we also know what we hear in the sectors. we still need our students to have effective problem-solving th- skills and thinking skills with this information. Because if you have the facts but you can't apply it, you need both. Um, so I'm, I think I said to you this last year, we've invested in our teachers. We're offering AQ courses for teachers here in-house who are accredited, and we're subsidizing that to have more teachers feel more proficient in math and as I told you last year, a lot of teachers who come into the primary junior grades, you know, grade one to six, many of them don't have a math background or don't have math training. So we're providing that uh, in-house. And in addition, the curriculum, because um, I taught this curriculum when I was in the classroom in the late 90s, I can speak firsthand. It is robust. And I hear over and over to teachers that there's a lot to cover in a 60-minute period block each day. Um, so, and then in the junior grades it becomes more intense. So again, I go back to same group of kids, grade six, all of a sudden close the gap and do much better in grade nine. What are the, what are some things I know as a fact? Well, we tend to have more teachers with uh, proficiency in math in grade seven, eight, nine, and you know, and especially when they get to grade nine, you know, they do focus on 75 minutes a day. So. Um, and one of the things that teachers have said to us, what they struggle with is when they have to report to parents on the report card elementary bill is they have to report in the five strands. And uh, they feel at times they have to, they're feeling pressured sometimes to move on to the next strand, whether a student has got the concept or not, because they have to report in five different areas in mathematics. Um, so, so, so I'm actually welcoming the curriculum rec, uh, review and hoping we can actually narrow the focus and not dumb it down, but narrow the focus on the essential pieces. Uh, and there are things year to year that we're seeing that are being repeated, and we're wondering you know, maybe some of the value of some of those stuff that are being repeated year after year that we need to review.
0: Well, listen, I've heard anecdotally from teachers, and I'm, I'm sure you too have heard this, Many is uh, they get a little frustrated because they say, you know what, this particular lesson, for instance, the one they may be teaching today, uh, you know, we could have used a lot more time, but I had to rush through it because you don't really have time to to, to spend the time on it that you like. Others may not be so bad, but there are periods and, and portions of the curriculum, they've told me, that they say, we, we feel rushed, and we know the students aren't getting it, but we don't really have the opportunity or the time to do anything about it.
2: it that's exactly, I've heard some of the same stories, and my wife's still in the classroom, uh, Bill. So there's, there's a difference from reading. If I'm teaching reading, um, Regardless of the, of the content, I can embed reading in all my areas of focus and, and re- reiterate those reading skills that students need. But in math, there are units and strands that teachers need to move on. And I'm wondering whether we actually need all those five strands every year or whether we should be scaffolding in diff- a different way. Because that is what we hear around teachers who feel they have to move on to cover the curriculum, even though because they're running out of time.
0: So, so but that's not that. your call, though, is it? That's something that's got to have to be done at the ministry level, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so we keep on saying, yes, in terms of curriculum review and reporting on strands, we do get the direction from the ministry to say these are the strands that need to be taught and reported on uh, in each reporting cycle. Um, but what we're trying to say, then, if we can do our analysis and say, okay, these are the areas that we want you to focus more on, yes, you still have to report on each, but let's, let's see where maybe we, we could focus more time in certain areas because of where we're seeing uh, the greatest gaps. All
0: right, so the analysis continues, and, and obviously you're being you know, pretty in, 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 intricate about this to try to drill down and find out what's going on. How quickly can you turn this around?
2: Well, that's, uh, now that we have the data uh, uh, available to us for every school, um, our, our work now in the next three weeks is, is that's the intense focus of our research department and people from our programs. Is to do that analysis, and we said our target now over the next two years in grade uh, six is to close that gap. We need to close that gap, um, and I would like to see that gap. When I look at the gap in, in grade nine, it's uh, in applied and in, in, in academic. We've you know our students are three to five you know three to five percent is the gap from academic and applied, but in junior it's fourteen. So obviously our students over time close that gap and do better in grade nine. The same group of kids. I like to see over time that we could close that gap. So in the next three or four weeks, that's how quickly we want to turn around that analysis.
0: All right. So, I mean, listen, you want kids to do the best they possibly can, but is your short-term goal here to try to at least achieve the provincial average?
2: Well, I think short-term is to close the gap, and I and I uh, s- uh, say that because um, uh, when you think realistically, to close it, to close the gap of fourteen percent in one year it, um, is not a realistic target. Your target no. has to be realistic, but. Uh, we say over the next two years, we would like to close the gap and see if the gap can get closer to where we were, where we are in grade nine, uh, about a four to five percent gap. How can we, over two years, move that gap closer to the to the provincial average?
0: Because obviously, the long term goal here is is the you know quality education, and, and I think we're all on the same page there. But the, the, there seems to be quite a debate right now about how we're going to get there.
2: Yeah, at, at the end of the day, we keep on telling our teachers too all this data. Te- it, this data is so important because it informs us about the needs of our students over time and the EQAO is connected to curriculum expectations. So at the end of the day, the more we can learn about our students, because at the end of the day, I've said this to you before, we want to make sure our students have the right skills when they graduate. We've seen our graduation rate go up a percent a year over the last three years, and and I would say that that's not, that's not by coincidence. It's been very intentional about tracking and using these data sets to help us inform instruction because... Uh, even after grade nine, there's in grade ten where we have the literacy test. There's no other provincial assessments, but we still need to understand our students to make sure our graduation rate continues to uh, uh, to grow.
0: Are you getting help from the ministry on this? I, I mean, we had a discussion. I remember a few years ago because there seemed to be a rather wrong-headed policy there that the schools that did best on these tests. Uh, were rewarded. The other ones were kind of left to to sink or swim on their own, which I thought was totally opposite of the way it should have been. Those that have the lower scores are the ones that really need more assistance in situations like this, and and assistance is funding. Let's get you know right to the chase here, uh, to be able to give you the resources to do this. I, I last time I went by your board office, I didn't see a money tree out there, Manny. So I mean, you'd like to think that somebody else is going to step up, and that would be the provincial government.
2: Yeah, no, Bill. The the ministry has provided some funding based on some of the results. That's why we have. Six math coaches in our schools and uh, high priced schools because they were some of the schools that had uh, the worst results in EQA. So they have. good, But but I would say not to the same level uh, that uh, we require because we always say in Hamilton, we, in our public board, we welcome all students. We're a diverse group. And we have uh, some social-economic factors that we need to be aware of. Uh, in, in the most recent Auditor General's report of our board, they did... They did, you know, they reviewed two public boards and two Catholic, and especially the two public boards had uh, 26 and 27 percent of students who required some support in terms of special education services, and and relative to the Catholic boards, they were 12 and 16 percent, respectively. So we keep on pushing um, to the province that the funding needs to be distributed equally based on the needs that boards have, and not all boards are created equally in terms of their their demographics. Uh, But again, it's not an excuse, it's a a reality we need to deal with, so how do we have the resources to support to help close these gaps?
0: Well, and that's something that you and I have talked about in the past. I mean, there are socioeconomic factors at play here, Uh, and, and that's not to suggest they aren't happening in other cities as well, but I mean, every city is unique uh, with intake, et cetera. And, and, and I, you know, again, that's something that has to be, uh, I think factored in when we look at what's going on here. Uh, obviously you've got a plan and, and you've got a strategy for this right now too. So hopefully that we're going to see some positive results in this in the, uh, the months ahead on this. Many, I really do appreciate you taking the time for us today. You're welcome, Bill. Anytime. You betcha. Mandy Figueredo, of course, who is the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, Math scores, uh, something that we're always going to be talking about, I guess, because it seems to be problematic just about every time these scores come out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We just went through a provincial election course here in Ontario. The federal election is scheduled for next fall. And one of the sticky points of any election campaign is always leaders' debates. Because there's always kind of a dog's breakfast here. Well, who's going to be invited? Uh, For instance, on the federal level, is Elizabeth May for the Green Party going to be invited? What kind of questions are going to be asked? What's the format going to be? Well, previously, it was done by what they call a a broadcast consortium. In other words, the networks that were carrying it basically made up all the rules, which I think was patently unfair. So during the last uh, campaign some years ago, uh, Justin Trudeau said, look, if we form government, we're going to uh, develop what they call an arm's-length body to organize all these debates. And uh, we're getting word out of Ottawa now that they apparently are sort of working on that, and they hope to have it done in time for next fall's campaign. Well, I'm not so sure that it can be an independent body if it's the government that's actually setting this thing up. A lot of questions are being raised about this. Duff Coniger uh, is one of those people raising questions. Duff, of course, is the co-founder of Democracy Watch and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Duff, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today.
3: My pleasure, Bill.
0: When you get the government talking about the the parameters and what they want to do here, and they use the term arm's length, I'm getting the feeling it's a pretty short arm.
3: Oh, yeah. No, this word, word, arm's length, or the word independent, is thrown a around a lot in Ottawa and across the country in the provincial capitals and even in cities when they're talking about uh, government watchdogs and democracy watchdogs. And none of them are independent, actually. They're across the country pretty much, except in B.C. And in uh, a couple of cases in Ontario, uh, they're chosen by the ruling party. And they're watching over the ruling party often, mostly, uh, the government, and then in terms of elections over all the parties. And these are partisan patronage crony systems. That result in the appointment often of uh, lapdogs instead of watchdogs.
0: See, we've had this debate here locally in the Hamilton area because a lot of communities now are adopting uh, integrity commissioners, and we, which I don't think is a bad idea, but it's it, it's selected by city council, you know, and they and they, anything that the commissioner actually does has to be okayed by the so it's not arm's length. I mean, you know, it's it's phony to even use a phrase like that.
3: Yeah, it actually was a bad idea for the province of Ontario to allow city councillors
0: to. Select yeah, I, I I prefer act. a provincial. Ombudsman. Yeah, there, exactly. to take like, their,
3: like the uh, information commissioner and privacy commissioner watches, the provincial one in Ontario watches over all the municipalities and enforces the law that applies to them in terms of privacy and access to information. And that's the way it should have been done in ethics. You can't choose your own judge, it's a fundamental conflict of interest. And, you know, everyone would love to when they're charged with violation of the law be able to choose their own judge. Politicians are the only ones that get to do that. It's just You don't need any more examples, other than that one, of why people are turned off politics, because politicians choose lapdogs to enforce the laws that apply to them.
0: And, and as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I, I don't like the way that these debates are run previously. I don't like this consortium that gets to call the shots and say who can go and this is the format, etc. But... I'm not so sure that we're going in the right direction to change. This is change for the sake of change, it seems.
3: Well, um, the change is not going to be able to stop anyone from organizing their own debate and inviting the leaders to come. Mm-hmm. You couldn't stop that. That would be against the Charter, right? Because you have a, a right to freedom of association, right to freedom of expression. So are you are really going to tell party leaders, no, you can't go to that spot and speak during an election campaign? The courts would strike that down in a moment. But um, at least if they set up a commission that actually sets up nonpartisan fair debates for all the parties then you will take the wind out of the sails of a lot of those private events and i don't like the private events whether it's broadcasters or other interest groups because they all have an agenda you know let's say there was a party that wanted some regulation that none of the broadcasters liked you think they're going to get invited to the broadcasters debate or if it's some interest group holding the debate and they don't like one of the party's platforms uh, about, the, uh, about the interest that they're concerned about, they're not going to invite them. Or if they do invite them, they're going to try to make them look bad. So we do need a fair commission. The question is, is it going to be independent and fair? And the liberals, the way they've done appointments so far, they, every appointment that's been done is controlled by the prime minister's office or a cabinet minister. They've, they've claimed they've made the appointment process uh, independent and merit-based. Um, they haven't. Uh, they, the best has been the choos- choosing of the new RCMP commissioner, where they had a uh, seven out of the 10 members on the selection committee were not from the government. But in every other case, including choosing the new chief electoral officer that will actually run the election, the prime minister's office and the cabinet have controlled the whole process. And that means that those whole, all those positions are tainted by partisanship. And it's It's very, very bad and very dangerous to our democracy.
0: So how do you avoid that?
3: Well, uh, Democracy Watch is actually challenging the appointment of the new ethics commissioner and lobbying commissioner in court Mm -hmm. right now, and those hearings will be in November. And so hopefully the court ruling will come out and give some guidance as to how key it is to have independence. And the way you do it is you set up a commission of people who are not politicians, because politicians have interests to protect even if they come from all parties, have people from outside the government, the way Ontario selects judges. Seven of the 13 members of the, the commission that uh, comes up with a short list for candidates for judges in Ontario uh, are people from outside the government. And uh, it should be all of the members, but at least it's a majority on that committee. And they do a, a merit-based public search with set criteria that they have to follow, and they come up with a short list of three people. And the, the uh, attorney general, uh, the minister of justice in Ontario has to choose from among those three people they can't go outside the list and so they're restricted and they have to choose uh, who this commission comes up with it's the world's best model it could be better again if if all the members of this uh... judicial appointments advisory committee were not from the government but it's the best model in the world and it should be used across canada for every single appointment of of everyone judges and anyone who enforces any law uh, especially the, the laws that apply to political parties and politicians and government officials.
0: By the way, I know we're going down a little bit of a side street here from our main conversation, but I'm glad you brought that up uh, well, because, it's key. because if, if that oh yeah, because you know what, done. we had a big discussion about, about the notwithstanding thing that Premier Ford tried to enact and. And, of course, when that first ruling came down a week and a half or so ago, a lot of the folks that were supporters of Ford said, ah, it's a liberal judge, a liberal appointee. That's not the way the system works. And I said, well, please do not say judges are, are, are politically inclined because that's not what the way that they're, they're appointed.
3: Well, actually, that uh, when I'm talking about the Ontario system, it's only for provincial court judges. Yeah. That judge was appointed through the federal system. The federal system is open to partisanship because they do have judicial appointment advisory committees, but the minister in the government chooses the members of those committees, all of them. Some of them come from outside the government, but the minister chooses them all. And also, they send a long list to the minister. So let's say there's one, judici- one uh, position open in an Ontario court, uh, the superior courts and the appeal courts. They'll get a list of like 20 people. That's too long a list because the minister can go down the list and say which one of these people is most sympathetic to my party and choose that person and so the key is that they have to get a short list of no more than three people and have to choose from those three people and can't go off the list and until the liberals change their appointment system at the federal level to match the ontario system the system is open to patronage and cronyism and the choosing of lapdogs like the new ethics commissioner and the new lobbying commissioner uh, both have track records as lapdogs, and and uh, we're challenging a ruling of the new lobbying commissioner in court because she threw out a, an, and stopped an investigation into a situation involving Prime Minister Trudeau, and we're challenging the appointment of the new ethics commissioner because he was formerly the integrity commissioner and had a horrible enforcement record in terms of protecting whistleblowers, and I'm sure the Liberals co- chose them both because th- they knew that they had lapdog tendencies.
0: So, back to the to the leader debates. Then, if we can tie that, what you've just described here, which I think is is a, a much better system for for appointments and for getting these things done, uh, how do you take it out of the hands of, of the governing party, whether it's the Liberals or the Conservatives, whatever it's going to be? I mean, some people are just saying, look, just tell Elections Canada to do this because there's a, supposed to be arms length, and the, the, uh, is that uh, also political? I mean, it, it just yeah, seems as if the th- tainted waters seem to be everywhere here.
3: Well. <clears throat> the liberals did choose the new the current chief electoral officer yeah um, and so and they chose him after a selection process that they controlled so i think they should ha- have a new commissioner the commissioner should be lo- located in uh, the election canada office there's no sense creating a whole new administrative burden you know new offices and everything like that um, you don't need a lot of people to run these debates uh, the, uh, but the appointment process is key. And if they do, are not going to set up a committee or commission to, that's fully independent from the government and all federal political parties to choose the people or person who will serve as the commissioner or on this commission, if it's going to be multi membered, then everyone should suspect that they're going to choose people that will favor the liberals in the next election, and that will undermine the entire election. Uh, so that's key. And then they need to set criteria. So any leader who uh, meets the criteria should be allowed to participate in every debate. And that criteria should be something like if you, your party received a certain percentage of the vote in the last election, if you have an MP in the House of Commons that you elected, uh, things like that that are set and can't be you know, uh, debated. You either meet the threshold or you don't. And that would end the games. And then because the broadcasters use public airwaves, they're, they're licensed to use them, the broadcaster should be required to air the debate It's it's fundamental democratic process that to the, all the public has an interest in, and you shouldn't have to buy some extra cable package and uh, or have internet access in order to watch the uh, federal election debates. Um, and and then there should be set criteria as well in terms of uh, the t- topics of the debate and how those will be chosen and how all the parties will have input and. And uh, a process for that so that the commission can't just make it up as they go along, and, and uh, they should have to take into account um, things like public surveys about the interests of voters, you know, things like that, that, so that you can't play around with the system at all. All those have to be rule based, and the person has to have independence. And that really means passing a law. And the liberals are saying, well, there's no time to pass a law. Well, first of all, what have you been doing? You know, the elections in 2019. <laughs> Second of all, yes, you could. If you actually put a, uh, propose a fair system that will be impartial and have integrity, the other parties will endorse it, and it, and it can go through the House quite quickly. It's, and So I suspect they're trying to play games, because they're saying they're not going to put this in l- law. They're just going to do it all
0: themselves. Yeah, They're saying next year is going to be like a test run.
3: Yeah, a test run where the liberals control it all. That's ridiculous.
0: Okay, We're yeah, Because that test run is going to play. elect a government. Sorry? That test run is going to elect a government for the next four years.
3: Exactly. They, and it can't be run by the Liberals, which is essentially what everything that's come out so far. It sounds like we're going to choose the person. We're going to say what they do. One party is going to determine the rules and the person who's going to enforce the rules for election debates. I mean, that is as bad as what the Harper Conservatives did in 2014, where they suddenly introduced a 300-page bill that changed all, all the r- sorts of rules in the election without consulting the opposition parties at all. That's not how you make democratic changes. It's you know the, the liberals are just repeating. Uh, Doug Ford did, just did this with the Toronto city election. Not didn't consult anyone, not even his own caucus, and just imposed this bill. It's it's not the way that uh, things are done if you care about democracy and. So they'll be sending a very strong message that they are trying to rig the next election if they don't do this properly and, and through a law.
0: And even if they do decide to go through proper channels though, Duff, which you know would be, okay, debate, uh, first reading, et cetera, et cetera, it goes to committee. I mean, the committees are all dominated by liberals anyway because they're the majority government.
3: They are, and committees cannot change a bill if there isn't something in the bill already that uh, deals with some concern they might have. You can't just add new things to a bill. That's what first reading and second reading are for. If, if a bill is approved at second reading, then the framework of the bill is the framework, and it can't be changed by the committee. So they couldn't make a fundamental change after that. Um, they can do this right. Uh, they didn't do the electoral reform right. They tried to rig that whole process and then broke their promise. Um access to information they've made promises uh, their own committee dominated by liberals has called for changes to the law they're not introducing them uh, they're, they're, they're this uh, another committee called for uh, that the liberals endorsed on the committee endorsed seventeen changes to strengthen whistleblower protection the liberals have said we're not going to do any of those they're ignoring their own mps who have, are, have been working on in a few cases on key democratic reforms with the other parties at the committee and and endorsing them unanimously, these changes, and the Trudeau cabinet is saying no. We we like we don't want to have whistleblower protection. We don't want to have government transparency and we want to try and rig the next election. That's essentially the message that they're sending very clearly with their actions so far.
0: Well, you may recall the statement from the Prime Minister that uh, that election from four years ago, or three years ago now, uh, is the last time we're going to vote in that fashion. It's the last time an election like that is going to be run like that. I'm kind of getting the feeling right now it's going to be a rerun again in 2019. Yes, and uh, a big broken promise. Well, first past the post, we know that's going to be there again.
3: Yes, because Trudeau broke his promise. He didn't put conditions on the promise, and then he just made up conditions afterwards. And, and when they set up the committee to study electoral reform, first they tried to rig it. They wanted a majority on the committee so they could force the committee to do whatever they wanted. When when the opposition parties raised the stink, and and uh, most of the media and public commentators as well said, you're just trying to rig it, they backed off on that. And then when they couldn't rig it, he just broke the promise. So. You know, this is this and, is politics and through as the minister, usual. This is not real change,
0: and through the minister under the bus,
3: exactly. And and the Trudeau uh, liberals, even more than Harper Harper did in two thousand five election, uh, the Trudeau liberals promised no more politics as usual. We're going to clean all this stuff up, and they have broken pretty much every promise since. Def- so they they uh, have a really bad record, and as I say, they're looking. Now it seems with these debates to, in in part, rig that that part of the next election. It's very bad. Well, we're going
0: to look rather skeptically and see how they follow through on this in the days and weeks ahead. As always, Duff, really appreciate your input. Thanks for this today.
3: Thank you very much. And people can easily send a letter to, to call for changes to the appointment system and for democratic reforms to elections from at democracywatch.ca.
0: You betcha. Always a call to action at the end. Appreciate it, Duff. Take Thank care. You, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.